A reading from Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I gave you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on the sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with a sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with the sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Thank you. Margaret for reading that. Keep your Bibles open there. Well, good morning. Um, happy Mother's Day. It's, it's wonderful to be here as God's people. It's wonderful for us to honour parents, mothers and fathers. It's, it's wonderful for us to do that. It's, it's wonderful to also know that we are, we're created by God, that we're special to him and that he has made us male and female and we all play different roles in the family home at home, but we also have different roles in the church as well, and it's wonderful that we can do that today. Let's pray as we come to Jonah chapter 3, as we continue our series in the scandalous mercy of God. And I hope you're excited. Jonah is convicting. This is one small book with a very big message. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you'll give us the eyes to see, change our hearts, Father, we pray that as we read these words and we hear them explained, that we'll see your character more deeply, that not only will our mind be stimulated, but our hearts convicted so that our wills, that we'll go out this week and, Father, know what it is to be sorry and to repent. And, Father, help us to do that for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last year, was travelling. Um, we were travelling back from Hastings Point, which is on the far north coast of New South Wales. We're travelling back. We're going to go to Tuncurry for for a week. So we had a couple of nights between Hastings Point and Tuncurry, and we, we decided to stay at a place called Southwest Rocks. We, as a family, we hadn't stayed there before, so we hired a caravan park. We stayed there. One day, it was a beautiful October, warm, sunny day. There was no clouds in the sky. It was beautiful. We went and checked out the jail on the peninsula this old jail from 100 years ago, and it was a beautiful day. It was magnificent. And as we drove around the National Park in a way, we drove to the end of this car park, and we, we saw that there was this, these pools called the Mermaid Pools. So we thought, why don't we walk there? We'll, we'll have a bit of a look there. So we hopped out of the car, locked the car. This, this walkway was at the end of the car park, and it had a fence, it had posts, it had rocks, but it had this little walkway that you could see was well trodden through the the scrub and so we thought well why don't we go and have a look at these mermaid pools we hopped out we walked towards the track and guess what there's a sign there that says danger mermaid pools it has that picture of don't swim don't jump don't do these things and that kind of stuff I sort of read the sign thought okay yeah but we're not going to swim 
It'll be fine, don't worry about it. And so I led my family through this track. My wife's in the back going, boys, be careful, there's a cliff edge, there's this. And, and as we're walking through this track, you know, it was a beautiful day. And the boys stuck on the track, it was cliff, but it was magnificent, the scenery. And we kept walking, and eventually we got to Mermaid Pools. And they were beautiful. We sort of sat there for 15 minutes, enjoying the scenery. There was the odd other person there. And I thought, what's dangerous about this place at all? There's nothing. And so after about 15 minutes, we, we headed back and we walked back and Al's there saying, boys, be careful, don't run off too quick, you know, because there's this trail through the scrub. And as we come out of the scrub towards the end there, as I'm coming out into the open, there's a National Parks vehicle sitting there and here's this lady in her National Parks gear. And as I walk out, like, oh, I'm not too interested, I'm not worried. And she says, oh, excuse me, sir. I was like, oh, yes. And my boys are trolling behind me and there's my wife trolling behind. And she said, do you realise that you're not meant to be down there? It's like, no, nah, come on. It's just says danger. She said, no, 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 the, 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 the mermaid pools are closed to the public. And I said, well, the sign doesn't say it. It just says don't swim, don't, don't jump. And she said, sir, you, you know, you're actually not meant to be down there. And she was really lovely. She was really kind. It was, they were hard words. And so I took her to the sign and I started to read the sign out to her. And guess what happened as I started to read the sign that it was actually closed? Now, I thought, whoa, like it's, it's, it's full on. But, I thought, but it's not a big deal, is it really? Like we're fine, we've walked out. They were hard words of love. But then the next thing that came out of her mind, I said, but what, why? And she said, well, it's closed. She said, like even last week, a teenager died there. Right? That was, she said, just last week, a teenager died. They've had like six people die in the last six years there. And so they've closed it to the public. Now, in that moment, they were hard words of love. And yet, as I heard those words that a teenager had died, they were terrifying, weren't they? For me, the, the, the sense of the situation actually made sense. That now, if I go to a national park, I'm going to read the sign. It's going to change my behaviour. But in that moment, they were hard words of love. It made me think, what could happen if... It did turn south. But currently, in, in our current historical situation here in the 21st century, to speak of the prospect of judgment is said to be lacking in love. It's not love to tell someone that they are doing wrong. It's not love to say, actually, that's not what you do. It's lacking in love to make a judgment call on someone. And I wonder, as we come to Jonah 3, we're going to sort of wrestle with that tension. Because this is a passage of God speaking judgment. But at the same time, as we see God who speaks judgment, we're going to see that in that judgment there is mercy. I wonder if you can wrestle with that concept. We say it's lacking in love to judge someone, but there is hard love. We're going to learn about mercy. Sometimes you might think to yourself, well, someone's pulled me up because I've done something wrong. That's not love. That's just judgment. How is that loving? And so we're going to come to Jonah chapter 3. And I want us to have that tension in our mind of hard love. See, Jonah chapter 3 is actually the middle of the book. Jonah has four chapters, one and two, and then three and four. We're here in the middle. It's almost like we start off again. And so this morning, we're going to start at Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. And we're going to see three things this morning. We're going to see, firstly, that, the, that God is the God of second chances. 
the God of second chances. See, Jonah's been on the run. He's been running from God. He's disobeyed him. He went down to Joppa. He did not repent. He would rather die than say sorry to God. He would rather just fall asleep in the boat than pray to God because he despises the Ninevites. How could you show mercy to them? And we get to chapter 3, verse 1. And it's almost as if the story starts over again. Have a look at verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Have you read that before? Chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. It's Okay, we've had, we've had take one. Here's take two. And it leads us as the readers to think, what's going to happen this time with Jonah? What's going to happen? Let's look there. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And I think this is a beautiful word. It's a second time. The word came to Jonah a second time. Arise and go. We've heard that in verse 2 of chapter 1. Arise and go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. In chapter 1 it says arise and call out against. Here it says arise and go and give them a message. What's going to happen? What's going to happen this time? How is Jonah going to respond? Have a look at verse 3. Anticipated, Jonah obeyed. Jonah actually arose and he went. He obeyed the word of the Lord and he went to Nineveh. See, instead of chapter 1 where he went down to Joppa, he kept going down and down and down. Here he actually goes to Nineveh. He goes. What a response. It's it's interesting because... Jonah was in a Jonah, he ran, he went down, he went into the ship, he didn't want to repent. He got he got thrown overboard, he's quite happy to die. He finds himself at the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. He has a praise of thanksgiving, but we also see that his attitude's a bit disconnected, he's a bit prideful, and then he gets spewed up onto dry land. And he finds himself on dry land. And he goes to Nineveh. Jonah is a broken man. He's a weak vessel. He's stuffed up. He's humbled. And as we picture this of Jonah doing this, isn't it amazing to know that God uses weak and messed up people? That he works through broken people whom he works through. He works through us even in the midst of our terrible attitudes, even in the midst of our our moments where we serve for self-serving reasons, where we puff ourselves up. He works through us in our weakness so that we can't boast. Remember chapter 2? Salvation belongs to who? It belongs to God. I think it's so encouraging to hear Margaret at the front today say to us, I feel weak and unable. And that's, that's the place we're to be. Because even, even the Apostle Paul, in, in 1 Timothy, he says, I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, <laughs> I killed, I did all these things. And I was arrogant, messed up, but God used me. In his mercy, he poured his grace on me. How amazing it is that God is a God of second chances. I think the more we reflect on Jonah's response, the more I realise I'm just as messed up as him. And yet we are in a more privileged position than Jonah on that, sea, on that shoreline. We're, we're in a more privileged position because we're this side of Jesus and the cross. Because the gospel reminds us that God is a God of second chances. 
See, the gospel of Jesus Christ reminds us that Jesus came because we could have another chance. That we could be made right with God. As we go through the Bible, as you, as you read through the Old Testament, we see the same story over and over again. Abraham, through you, you're going to have a son. And what does Abraham do? Abraham do he? He basically gives his wife away twice. You've got Jacob, who's a deceiver. You've got King David, who a king who represents God to the people. This king, he commits adultery, he lies and he murders. The God of second chances. And then, and then we get to the apostle Peter, who said to Jesus, how much... I will, never dis- I will never betray you, Jesus. And Jesus goes, do you love me? Do you love me? And he goes, oh, three times. Peter says, oh, yeah, it's all good. It's all good, Jesus. It's all good. It's all good. And what does he do? Before the rooster crows in the morning, he's stuffed up. And then after, Jesus says, do you love me, Peter? Yes, I do. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, I do. Peter, do you love me? And he says, yes, I do. So that God is a God of second chances. How, how wonderful that is for us here today. Or how wonderful that news is for, for maybe you as a parent, whether you're a father or even on this Mother's Day. As a mother, you may have really stuffed up. You may be fit, sitting here feeling absolutely guilty about the things that you've done. But the gospel is a gospel of good news for you today. Or maybe you're a child and you know you've really treated your parents terribly. God is a God of second chances because of the gospel. How wonderful that is for us. How wonderful it is for you if you're not here as a Christian today. Maybe you're here with your mom or your dad and you come here to help and support. Or maybe you're here and you are seeking and searching. How wonderful it is to know that in the good news of Jesus Christ, we can be made right with God. There's nothing too big. There is nothing that Jesus can't cover for you. So he's a God of second chances. But also, I think, for us as a church, how, how comforting and, and, and actually motivating it is for us to know that as you hop off the train this week and you head home to work and you think to yourself, man, I've blown it again. I had an opportunity on that train to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and I stuffed it. Or, or how comforting it is to know in those moments where this week you walk into a shop and you have a great conversation with the, the barista or you have a great conversation with the, the clothes saleswoman and... And you think, man, I had an opportunity, but I walked out. We, we can get up again and go. Because God is a God of second chances. But not only that is secondly, the change it brings. Have a look at what the God of second chances brings. Look at the change that it brings in verse 3. Now, Nineveh was a exceedingly or a very large city. It took three days to go through. Now, It's not saying to us that it would take three days to walk across the whole city because Nineveh was smaller than that. You could do it, right? But it's just saying by the time he got there, it would take three days to get through it in another way. It took three days to go through it. Now, cities are busy places. They're they're action-packed. They're full of stuff going on. But imagine Jonah at this point. Then Jonah, he begins to go a day's journey into the city, verse 4, proclaiming 40 more days... And Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, Jonah goes in there, but imagine how he'd be feeling. He's, he's been spewed up by a fish. He's weak. He's stuffed up. But not only that, remember back to week one. The Assyrians were the most powerful nation on earth in the known world at that time. And the city of Nineveh was terrible. They were evil. They used to 
cut limbs off of their enemy. They would burn them alive. They would stretch them out and skin them. And they put the skins of human corpses up on the wall to be viewed by everyone. And Jonah walks into the city and he proclaims judgment. That's full on. But what does he say? What does he proclaim? Well, he says it's going to 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned or overthrown. This word overturn is destruction. It's a word that's used in Genesis 19 of Sodom and Gomorrah where they will be overturned and destroyed. And see, Sodom and Gomorrah is an Old Testament image and picture for us of how God treats wickedness. And he overthrew it, overturned it. Total destruction. Wiping the city out. 40 more days and the city will be overturned. But this word in the Hebrew actually has another flavour as well. Not only does it mean to overturn, but it has another meaning as well. It means to return. It means to change. It means to reform. So it's got this ambiguity that as Jonah is preaching this message, the author wants us to see, yes, they'll be overturned, but actually it leaves us as a reader with a sense of, I wonder if they will return. Now, Nineveh, They definitely took it as being overturned. But there's this sort of, oh, what's going to happen here? And what did the preached word of God do? What did the preached word of God do? Have a look at verse 5. They believed. They believed God. Wow. The Ninevites believed God. Probably the most powerful nation in the world. This city of Nineveh believed God how good is that humbled this wicked nation has actually just been humbled by the word of God and have a look at verse five the rest of verse five it's it's status leveling the Ninevites believed God and a fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth There's no greater and no least. It's not like um, Susie sitting over here going, well, I'm greater and they're lower and the lowest ones repented. No, no, no. Every single person. There was no one great. There was no one low. Everyone put sackcloth and ashes on. The idea of sackcloth and ashes is sorrow and remorse. It's saying they are grieved by their evil ways. And they sit in dust. It's actually a picture of repentance. And no one felt exempt from it. I wonder in church life, do you ever feel exempt? You know, you sit there and you look over to the other aisles and you feel to yourself, I'm exempt from this, but that person over there is not. You know? They're, 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 They're worse than me. They should have more remorse and more sorrow than my behavior has led to belief. But I wonder, did you pick up on the extent to which the repentance went? Have a look at verse 6, because look at the king's actions. When Jonah warned, warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne and he took off his royal robes and covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. The king, he arose... He got off his throne, he took off his royal garment and he joined the people in the dust and the ashes. He gave up his kingly throne in this moment 
He gave up his position. He gave up his kingly seat. Imagine the powerful image that would have relayed to the people of that city to see a king to get up and to go down into the ashes and to show remorse. But just as I think about it now, how much more powerful is the image that Jesus, the king of the universe, actually stepped up off his throne and he came down into our mess. But this repentance, it moves not from individuals, it goes from the individual level, but the king in verses 7 to 9, he sends out a decree. So it's a city-wide thing. It's, it's the city is going to repent. We are going to sit in our ashes. We are going to be remorseful. But what we see here, though, too, is that the king is petrified. He's, he's terrified. But not only is he petrified, but he's terrified, but he's actually, he's got this, this hope. He's got this humble hope in verse 9. See, he knows the evil that they've done and they're repenting, they're remorseful of it. He knows that they deserve the destruction that is to come, but he has this bit of hope. Who knows? Did you notice that they still repent, even though they don't know the outcome? Who knows God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. They knew their wickedness. I, I, I wonder, do you know your wickedness? Your wicked ways. See, in, in chapter 1, the sailors, a couple of sailors, they repented. In, in chapter 3, we have over 120,000 people. Imagine that. Like, have you ever seen 120,000 people repent? with remorse and sorrow. What a picture. The change it brings. The change the power of God's word brings to people's lives. And so as we, we're just going to go a little bit longer in this point, there's going to be three little things I'm going to talk about. They're going to see the seriousness of sin. We see the seriousness of sin in this passage. The change that it brings about us reminds us of the seriousness of our own sin. God will not let sin go unpunished. He will go to great lengths to go and bring about change. So we see the seriousness of sin, but also how comforting it is to see the power of God's word as well. We see the power of the word of God in this passage. I wonder, do you ever underestimate? Do you ever doubt? Do you ever have those moments where you're sitting there going, man, it's all about me. I have to articulate this so well. I have to be so good at this. I have to be this great evangelist. I have to be wonderful in this. It's all about my willpower. No, no, no. What we see here is that Jonah preaches the word. Verse 2, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim the message I give to you. How wonderful it is that Jonah didn't come up with the message. How wonderful it is that we have the message in the Bible. We have the good news of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. But jump down again though and we see it again, the power of God's word in verse 4. He went through the city proclaiming. It's obvious that he probably preached a little bit more than just those couple of words, those five words in the Hebrew. It's amazing the power of God's word and how it works in our lives. And in here at Toon Gabby, I want us to be a culture where we're actually deep in God's word all the time, where it shapes everything we do. We want it to be running through our veins. We have 168 hours in a week, about 50 of them will sleep. If you get seven hours sleep a night, it's about 50 hours of them sleeping. And yet I, wonder, I hope we just don't want five minutes of God's word. 
that we want more. I wonder, do we come expecting God to speak today? Do we come going, actually, I want to see God's word change my, my life here today? Oh, one of the things I loved about Toon Gabby as I applied, one of the beautiful things was that they, you love expository preaching. And I think that's great because what that does is it means we go through the books of the Bible and we let God speak to us. As I was preparing to preach on Jonah, I had no idea that we were going to go to the places we've gone to. It's just convicted me and I hope it's convicted you. That we come, whether it's morning or not, we come expectantly with open Bibles ready to listen, to show visitors and our friends that actually, no, no, we believe and trust in the power of God's word. I wonder, does it change the way you're going to turn up next week? Or the way that you turn up to a life group? Knowing that God's word is powerful. This week I was on Twitter. I just follow Twitter just to see what's going on around the place. And I love this photo this week of where a pastor had a photo of his said, wow, he just got to baptise an 88-year-old man because the gospel changed his life. Isn't that wonderful? To be baptising young people, to be baptising 90-year-olds. What a beautiful picture. So the power of God's word changes our lives. And as parents, as you disciple your kids, the power of God's word has a big place in their life. I, I, I remember Susanna Wesley, who was a, a, you know, lived centuries ago. She had like 19 kids. Um, the mother of John and Charles Wesley, who wrote heaps of hymns, who were part of the Great Awakening. She had 19 kids, but you know, about 10 of them died before she died. But she, she had this centrality in her life where she'd spend an hour with every kid every week and, and part of that was opening up God's word with them. And no wonder we see the effect of that ripple down through hymns and centuries. It's a beautiful thing as parents to be opening up the word of God with your kids. Isn't, isn't it encouraging that as parents that... You don't have to wear that burden, but you trust that God's word will change their lives, that the spirit will work, that you don't have to get it right. The power of God's word, it actually produces repentance. That's, that's something else I've really strongly picked up in this passage. Is there's this theme of repentance everywhere. J.I. Packer said that repentance is a change of mind issuing in a change of life. Repentance is a change of mind Issuing in a change of life. Repentance equals changed behaviour. Sometimes we're sorry, but we're not repentant. I'm going to show you. The king gets it, right? The king knows what repentance is. Have a look at verse 8. The king knows what repentance looks like. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth and let everyone call urgently on God. He's not sorry for... I've sort of done this. It's, no, no, no. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. The king gets that repentance is actually a change of behaviour. It's, oh, we're sorry, we're remorseful in the ashes, but to be sorrow and remorseful means that our actions are going to change. Very clear, it's the evil that they have done, the evil that they've shown to the nations around them. That's repentance. Sometimes we just say sorry because we've just got caught. But not only are we meant to believe it in our minds that we are wrong, but we are to grieve it and then it affects 
our actions. See, repentance is it's actually a change of direction. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus is speaking to the crowds and the crowds go, Jesus, we want one more sign. Give us one more miracle. As if, Jesus, if you give us one more miracle, then we'll repent. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to give you any more. I'm just going to give the sign of Jonah. So what he's saying to them is the city of Nineveh was so quick to repent at the preaching of a, a weak runaway prophet. They repented at that, but you won't repent in front of the king of the world. And I wonder sometimes, do we sit here today waiting, going, you know, I want more before I'll change. What does real repentance look like? See, a true apology is grieving your behaviour. But repentance is a change in behaviour. Here's an example of what it might look like, right? Here's what repentance doesn't look like. Let's do that one first. You turn up to work, you've got a new job, you turn up to work and you're late every day. For, you're late by 10 minutes to work. And so you walk in through the doors of the office and you say to everyone, hey everyone, I'm so, so sorry I've run late this morning. I, I, oh, I'm so sorry, I won't do that again, right? Come back the next day, you do it again, right? You walk through the door, I'm sorry I'm late again. You do it again and you do it for two weeks. Oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm late. And then the boss has a chat with you and you go, oh, right? So the next week, you say, I'm so sorry that I've been running late. Next week, I'm going to be on time. And so for the next week, you turn up at 10 to 8. You walk through the door and you beat everyone and it's woo. But then the next week, you're 10 minutes late. Do you see that's not repentance? That's not repentance because it's, you're sorry. You're just sorry that you're late, but nothing changes. But see, repentance would be, I am sorry that I am running late. That's my fault. Next week, I'm going to endeavour to be on time. Right? And you want, to change, you want to see that behaviour changed. So what I want to quickly do now is I'm going to quickly just share with you I reckon it's helpful for us that there's, there's roadblocks to repentance, but then there's gospel-motivated repentance, right? There's things in our life that block us from repenting and there are things that motivate us to repent. Now, I didn't come up with these, right? I'm not that smart. I've just read them and I thought these are great, so I picked a couple of them for us. Here's some roadblocks to repentance. The first roadblock we can have is putting off repentance. Sin feels good right now. So repenting appears like it will suck the fun out of life, right? You don't want to repent because it's going to suck the fun out of life. The second one could be your regret instead of repenting. You're only sorry for what happened because of your sin and not sorrowful over how your heart loves sin. Do you see the difference? The blockage there is, yes, you're sorry of what happened, but your heart doesn't actually hate sin. Another one could be you don't pray. You pray for many things, but not that your heart will hate sin. Or ask God to change you. See, in 2 Timothy it says, pray for those, share the word with those, and hopefully God will grant repentance. Another thing could be glossing over sin. What does glossing look like? You, you think that to yourself that your sin is only just a handful of small things, just a handful of missteps that sort of come out of nowhere. A small view of sin that leads to a small view of repentance. Another way that could block us is actually relying on your own willpower. You trust in your own willpower instead of seeking God. 
It's in these moments, so in those moments where we think we're relying on our own willpower, it's in those moments that we've actually forgotten that we are the problem in why we need to repent in the first place. Do you understand that? The reason you need to repent is because you're the problem in the first place and yet we're going to rely on our own willpower to fix the problem. So they're blockages, but here's gospel-motivated repentance that helps motivate us. It's actually that your guilt is washed away. In Christ, your sin is forgiven. That means that you confess up to everything and own it all because there's no condemnation in Jesus Christ. How wonderful is that? That everything that you've done and you're going to do in the rest of your life, Jesus already knows about, so fess up, it's okay. Your shame is lifted. Your shame of your sin is far surpassed by the honour and dignity of being a child of God. And a repentant person is one who drags sin out into the open where it can be killed. So the shame is lifted by the gospel. Repentance is also gratitude. It's being thankful. Repentance actually flows from a thankful heart that has tears of joy for everything Jesus has done for you. But also another gospel-motivated reason is that, God, that repentance is love. Repentance is how you love. It's how you love because it shows how you love God. Our God is a God of second chances who brings change in our life. How wonderful that is for you today here if you're not a Christian. For rest in Christ. See, Nineveh believed God. See, for you, you can have this lifted by believing in Christ. Through his life, death and resurrection, you can be restored. But it's also hope for all of us here who have been walking with Christ for a year or 20 or 50. That he's a God of second chances who changes us. But thirdly, it's the scandalous mercy of God. Have a look at verse 10. We're going to see the scandalous mercy of God. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, what did God do? He relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. See, God threatened destruction, judgment, but God relented. Mercy is receiving what you don't deserve. Here in this passage we see hard love. God comes and he speaks a word of judgment on the nation, sorry, on the city of Nineveh. And yet they turn. And then you might be thinking, but hang on, okay. Does that mean God changes his mind? If he's threatened this, does that mean God's a God who can just change his mind depending on however he wants to change his mind? No. Because actually in Jeremiah 18. I'm just going to read to you from Jeremiah 18, where the prophet Jeremiah, he speaks. He says, this is in verse 7. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, this is God. And if that nation I warned repents of its evils. You see how God's, he warns them through judgment. And if that nation I warn repents of its evil, then I will relent. And not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a national kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I intended to do. Do you see? It's not that God's changing his mind, it's hard love. It's here's what's coming. But if you repent, I will turn, I will relent. See, to see the scandalous mercy of God, you need to see. God's judgment. 
By God speaking of this judgment to come, he's actually revealing his mercy to this city. See, God doesn't actually have to tell us of the destruction that is to come. God doesn't have to show us that because we deserve it. But in his mercy and in his grace, he tells us. See, Nineveh didn't deserve to know. They, didn't, they actually deserved to die just like you and me. We deserve to die because of our sin. It's, it's hard love. God does care about the way we live. And in his grace and his mercy, he warns us. He, he challenges us. He brings people into our lives who will convict you of sin. Sometimes isn't it, it's hard love when a friend comes to you and says, Hey, Jimmy, you've been doing this and it's wrong. And you go, how dare you judge me when actually it's the grace of God in your life. Do you know that? It's actually the grace of God in your life that he's brought someone to come and convict you of that so that you repent. It's a beautiful thing. It's, it, it, it's, it's a warning, isn't it? It's hard love. Like I was on that mirror, the, the mermaid pools. You know, I, I watch, I've watched the TV series called Shetland, which is a, an island in... Um, there are islands in, I think they're Scottish islands, the detective show, and it's been wonderful to watch. But what I notice about the scenery is that there's these sharp cliff edges and the locals know about it. They know not to walk too near these cliff edges because if they get too close, guess what's going to happen? They're going to drop into the sea. They know not to do it. But guess what? Tourists don't know that. Even though they've got the signs there warning them, do not walk near the cliff edge, guess what they do? They walk near it. And so locals have to be firm and hard and yell and tell people, do not walk near that edge. And we need those hard words as well. Because there's a reality of heaven and hell. See, the king was terrified, but it led to belief. He was terrified. The scandalous mercy of God, that God is a God of second chances, that God he ch brings change and that this scandalous mercy of God is evident here. Because see, these verses, as an Israelite would have read them, as someone later on after this event, as an Israelite would have read verse 10, actually they would have been humbled by it. They would have been convicted by it, I would have hoped. Because they despised Nineveh. They despised pagans. They called them Gentile dogs. They despised them. But as they would have read this and heard the words of verse 10, they would have been humbled because here God has shown mercy to pagans and Gentiles. But it would have reminded them of actually Exodus chapter 32. The same words are used in Exodus chapter 32 where Yahweh speaks it to Israel when they built a golden calf. When they messed up. When God said, I'm going to destroy, but he relented. It humbles us, doesn't it? As we look around us and we see other nations or other people and we despise them or think terribly of them. It humbles us to know that God showed mercy to us. What a challenge as God's people, what a challenge to the Israelites, what a challenge to us as disciples of Jesus today to actually see how quick Nineveh repented and yet how often we are very slow to repent. When we are confronted with our sin, are we going to, you know, we're not going to get out in sackcloth and ashes, but are we as quick to, to show remorse and to show sorrow? 
Because see, Yahweh's scandalous mercy isn't exclusively meant to benefit Israel alone. See, Israel, um, Yahweh's scandalous mercy wasn't just for Israel, it was for all the nations. God's gospel isn't just for us here at Toon Gabby Baptist Church sitting in this building today, it's actually for all the nations. It's scandalous that he would do this. See, the Apostle Peter, he's, he's sitting in a house in Joppa in Acts chapter 10. In Joppa, he's sitting there and he's thinking, how can the Gentiles be allowed into the kingdom of God? And he has a dream and God works in him and says, no, the Gentiles are a part of the people of God through Jesus Christ. Because, see, the God of second chances is the God who brings about change in people's lives. Why? Because of his scandalous mercy. See, the God of second chances brings about change in people's lives because of his scandalous mercy. What hope we have. What a message we have that, that we are benefits of the gospel. But I wonder as a church, we, we know the reality of heaven and hell. We, know, we have this message of God's mercy that's hard love. But are we ready to take it? Imagine 10 islands in the ocean, 10 Pacific islands where there's 10 million people and they're actually all dying. Every single one of them is going to die. And you're sitting here in Australia and in your hands you've come up with the medicine to actually heal them and bring them back to, to, to save them. Imagine if you're here, what would you do with that? What would you do? You'd, you'd do whatever you could to get that medicine to the people in those islands. But when would you stop? Would you stop at one? Would you go over there and, and buy a plane ticket? It's costly. You'd go over there and, and you give the medicine to one million people. Would you stop at one million? Would you stop at two million? Would you stop at three million? What would you do if you had this medicine that could give life? We have the words of eternal life. We have the good news of Jesus Christ. May we not stop at one, two, three or four. But may we go to the world with the hope of the message of a God of second chances who can bring change in people's life because of his scandalous mercy. Let's pray. Father, we, we plead with you now to work in our hearts a work of repentance. Father, work in our hearts to hate sin. Give us a hunger for your holiness. Give us a hunger for your word. Father, we pray that you'll do a good work in our hearts. But at the same time, not leave it there, but take this message to the streets around us, to the suburbs around us, to the city, to the country, to the, to the lands and to all the world. Father, because we have life in Jesus. Father, thank you for being merciful to us today. Amen.